Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503 558 6349 or slash Portland. On this episode of the podcast, we do not have a guest. We got nobody. <laughs> it's just uh, James and Nick here with you. We reached out to a couple different people for this episode and uh, nothing seemed to work out. Um, it's August, I think, 30th or something right now. Like yeah, summer doldrums, 29 there to like summertime, whatever, schedules, totally got a yeah. So if you've looked at the at the uh, title of this, uh, we're talking about Afghanistan. Um, I deployed to Afghanistan three times, and so I feel like I'm fairly knowledgeable on the subject. We were looking for someone that uh, had maybe a different experience than than I did. Uh, most of my friends from the army uh, deployed with me, and so had a very similar experience. I mean, it's different. There's different jobs and everything, but uh, we were looking for someone who maybe deployed at a different time, different place, uh, or whatever. But ended up not working out. So. Here we are. That's this. Honestly, and we say this all the time. I feel like if ever there were an episode to receive feedback or comments or something like that, if anybody's out there who actually has served as well, I mean, tell us what you tell us we're schmucks or whatever if you haven't served. <laughs> but if like if you've got on the ground experience and we say something that's wildly off or that's different from what you experienced, come, you know, let us know. Send a comment, send an email, whatever. Sure. Exactly. Yep. James at jamesaball.com is where to get a, a hold of us. And so, um, if you all haven't been paying attention to the news, uh, Afghanistan is in the process of falling to the Taliban. Um, this, I think it has at this point. That's, well, there, we're still like working on getting people out. Uh, there's still troops there. There's still civilians there. And so Taliban has essentially taken control of the of most of the country. They're trying to get people out of, out of the Kabul airport right now. Um, but yeah, so I was there three times. Uh, in 2009, 2011, and then uh, 2014, 15 uh, over there. So uh, my first time I was at Fabshank, which was just south of Kabul uh, in Logar province. Uh, we had two provinces, Logar and Wardak, that we were responsible for. And I was, I was a communications officer, so I mostly, mostly sat on the base and made sure the internet and, comp- and radios and computers just stayed on. To get a sense of perspective, how, how big is, Af- is Afghanistan like the size of Oregon? Is it like 10 times the size of Oregon? <laughs> like when you say um, just south of, you were south of Kabul, we, are you like an hour? It's like five we, hours? We're about 30 miles. 30 so, miles. Okay. Yeah. So that is relatively close. So yeah, I am, I, you know, I don't have a, uh, a map in front of me. I don't know exactly how big, Rational geographers uh, yeah. today. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's a not new... a question that I've been asked. <laughs> um, my second tour, I was in Kandahar province. So that was just west of Kandahar City. Okay. Uh, still in the province, middle of the desert. Um, if you look at a map of Afghanistan, there's a ring road that goes all the way around the outside. At the very southern point of the ring road, uh, just north of the southern point is where I was okay. that time around. And then the third time I was in uh, in in um, 
shoot, what's the name of the Air Force Base? Bagram. Bagram. Nice. Yes, that one. <laughs> that's, I have that's, not served, but that's, I, that's, that's the, the one, one thing I know. <laughs> that's the one I was at, uh, third go around. So uh, three different provinces, three different um, areas uh, throughout that. I, I made trips to Jalalabad and Mazari Sharif. And uh, of course, we flew into Kandahar City. I've, I've been to Kabul for a couple of days. Um, yeah, so I think Herat is the only like major city in Afghanistan that I haven't been to. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, can't say I spent a lot of time in any of those places. I think I spent, you know, three or four days in Kabul or three or four days in Jalalabad, that kind of thing. Uh, so, and I just to to rewind a little bit, like how you got there. For obviously, I don't think there's anybody who's watching this or listening to this who's not quite familiar. But the the Taliban, who have now, for all intents and purposes, taken over control of the country, and as we record this on August 29th, in two days, United States presence is done. We're going to be mm-hmm. out, fully gone. I don't know, you know, I don't know how they're going to manage that, but that's neither here nor there. We'll get to that at a later point in the episode, but. The Taliban, who has taken over the country, had ruled the country in the the mid and late 90s and were a tyrannical, dictatorial theocracy that fomented Al-Qaeda, who is obviously the terrorist group who is behind September 11th, masterminded by Osama bin Laden. And pretty much on September 12th, the United States woke up and, you know, George Bush gave that great speech with the bullhorn where he says, I hear you on the, you know, on top of the World Trade Center there. And no ifs, ands, or buts. We're going to go, these are bad guys and we're going to yep. go get them. And that has, that's how everybody got started in Afghanistan. That's how you got started in Afghanistan. And over the last 20 years, what we had looked to do is, I, I feel like there's some probably on the left who would argue we were nation building or trying to instill democracy and Western values into a, a part of the world where that is not a well, I don't typical think that, form of government. I don't think there's a whole lot of argument on that point. We, we, we were nation building. I mean, that was the express purpose of why we were there for a lot of it was to build wells, dig wells and build schools and maybe not instill, instill Western values, but definitely instill a democracy democracy and help the people because the the best way to get the people to fight for themselves and to stand up against the Taliban and tyrannical governments in general is to give them something to that they give them some to lose you know when, when all you're doing is farming the same plot of land for generations and you have no sort of at least that was the theory was you know let them give them education you know get them into this this broader economy and then when someone comes in and threatens that you know, maybe they'll they'll band together and stand up. And for 20 years, it's worked. It, Education rates have yeah. gone up. Drug use has gone down. I, it's it's still one of the poorest countries in the world, but it's still it's had no longer been a, a safe haven for terrorists. Al Qaeda is a shell of its former self. Osama bin Laden has been dead for over 10 years now. It's, yeah, it was geez. May, I think, of 2011. And yeah, I was there when that happened. I was, I oh, was, was that right? I was in Afghanistan when that ma- when that mission happened. We interesting. What was of that course, like? Well, so it wasn't like I was part of it. I was never part of the special operations team or mm-hmm. anybody. I heard about it on the news just like everyone else. Okay, uh, it really didn't affect us all that much. We just kind of heard on the news like, hey, they they ran off, you know, and killed Bin Laden because it happened in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. So the the mission was launched from Afghanistan in Jalalabad, which is just on the um, eastern border of Afghanistan. Uh, they launched it. So actually, um, when I was in Jalalabad, I, I walked past the airfield where they, where they took off from, which was, yeah, pretty cool. cool. Yeah. Cause it's the, uh, the special operations compound, not the main airport. And so I had somebody drive me over there and they're like, yeah, that's where they took off the helicopters to go on the bin Laden mission. I was like, that's kind of cool. Anyway, um, 
So the biggest issue for us was getting out of country at that point, because what we had been doing to get all of our equipment in and out is driving through Pakistan. Okay. So we would, um, there were military convoys and then there were civilian convoys. And a lot of what we do to move around our less sensitive equipment, you know, think Humvees and tents and generators and stuff that's expensive and needs to get moved. But at the same time, if it falls into enemy hands, it's not the end of the world. We would load them on the back of civilian trucks and pay the trucker, you know, Hey, go drive this to the port in, uh, in through Pakistan, <laughs> drive through Pakistan, get to the ocean and, uh, we'll pick you up there. And, uh, so that was basically how we moved stuff. Hmm. Um, more sensitive stuff went with military convoy or we'd get flown in and out, but flying in, and out um, heavy military equipment is very expensive. And so this is the most cost effective way to get out. Uh, Pakistan was kind of pissed when we did that because nobody told them that we were coming uh, because Pakistan, probably the worst kept secret in, in the military is that Pakistan does is a state sponsor of, of terrorism. Uh, same with Saudi Arabia. Like everybody kind of knows it, but nobody really has proof and there's other interests involved and I hope I'm not giving anything secret away, but the, those two countries, you know, put money into state sponsored terrorism. So we, we had a feeling that there, if, even if the government of Pakistan was not in on it, there's definitely enough holes in that organization that something would have gotten out to someone and bin Laden would have left. Mm -hmm. So we just didn't even tell Pakistan. We just went on their turf, ran this mission, killed a bunch of people and left. And, uh, so they were pissed and they said, okay, you can't drive your stuff through our country anymore. And so that we, we, instead of driving through, we, uh, moved all logistically moved all our stuff out by, by, uh, fixed wing aircraft at that point. So made it more difficult for me. Cause I was a, uh, actually that time I was, uh, I was an S six at that time. So it wasn't the first time I was a company XO. And so it was my responsibility to move everything. Uh, the second time around I was, Less less involved, but you still have to keep track of everything. Okay. The way the military works, and we're getting a little bit down a rabbit hole here, but uh, you own you sign for all your equipment, but then you have a logistics officer that's kind of responsible for coordinating everything. But I'm still responsible for making sure everything gets into the container, the container gets locked, and then the other guy makes sure it gets to where it's going. And then when it opens it up in the end, you know, I have to go through and inventory everything, make sure it all it all got there. So even though I wasn't the logistics officer at the time, I was still responsible for my stuff and had had to be pretty tied in to, to where it was going and how. So uh yeah, the, there's there's that rabble hole for you. Well, and it's it, honestly, it's interesting that you bring that up because this is one of the things that's been discussed uh, somewhat heavily in the just in the past week or two since kind of all of this has started to unfold. I think uh, August 15th is the official day that Kabul has fallen and into the Taliban hands. And that's just I mean, that's just a week and a half, two weeks ago. Um, but. One of the things that was kind of looked at as, you know, we thought we had spent 20 years training an army in Afghanistan. We thought we had there was innumerable supplies and almost 400,000 troops. And we thought that this was going to be an army, you know, trained by the United States, ready to kind of stand up and fight for their country. And the Taliban basically just walked in and basically bloodlessly Sun Tzu would have been very proud, but basically <laughs> bloodlessly just took over the entire country. And one of the things that has been pointed to is the immediate loss of air support on behalf of the United States. And this army in Afghanistan was 
obviously had been trained and obviously had a ton of weapons. But one of the things that was mentioned was without any air support, you don't have kind of the infrastructure to manage any of the logistical capabilities that you need to fight a serious war. And so rather than fighting and dying, they just said, okay, you guys, you got it. It's yours. We're just, we're just going to go. What does, so I'm seeing a look. So first off, how accurate is that? Second off, what does, what does the role of, you know, what does the role of air support look like from, you know, from a boots on the ground perspective? Well, so that's how we fight as Americans, uh, because we, in, in this particular case, I mean, this has not been the case throughout American history, but for this particular war, and I would say Iraq in, in addition, uh, we are very risk averse. A single casualty was not acceptable. You know, we, we basically did absolutely everything possible to make sure that a single American was not killed overseas. And I think that's a good thing, but what it did is it, it dictates the way that you fight. Okay. And so rather than, you know, charging up the hill and taking 30% casualties and, you know, planting your flag and, you know, being all excited about it, which is honestly, that's how you train is you train the, take the hill, take your casualties and still accomplish the mission. Uh, we didn't do that. It was, pin them down, call an air support and drop a bomb on their heads because you can do that from a mile away. You don't have to charge the hill. You don't have to get up there and get shot at. And so this is pretty typical when I was there is you'd go out on mission and someone would start taking pot shots at you from over the hill, from over there, not over the hill, like, you know, can't shoot through a hill, but um, (laughs) from behind a building, you know, someone would start shooting at you and you, you would hear the shots go off. Uh, They're far enough away that you can't really tell exactly where they're coming from just kind of general direction and so you'd you'd shoot back with enough firepower that would basically pin them in place or at least that was the idea try to figure out where it was coming from if you keep shooting bullets over their head they're not going to be able to move and so then you call in air support and 15 minutes later helicopter or a10 or something comes in drops a bomb on their heads and that's how we did it because again risk averse it's the way to to and so that when we're casualties when we're training the afghans that's that's basically how we trained them was, you know, shoot them, keep their heads down and drop a bomb on their heads. Um, so that's, I think that's kind of what you're talking about with the air support. When the air support goes away, that tactic doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And so you have to go take the hill and, you know, potentially fight and die. And so that kind of goes back to the Afghan mindset. And so this goes back in, in history a little bit. Um, so you mentioned the Taliban were in control through the late 90s. Uh, prior to that, it was the Soviets. The Soviets invaded in the 80s, uh, and then there was this a long, bloody war with that. And then the, the ragtag Mujahideen. Right. Charlie Wilson is smiling somewhere. Right, exactly. And then the Taliban came in and took over, and then they got blown up, and America came in and took over. And so basically from the early 80s until today, every single Afghan has not known anything except perpetual warfare. There, I mean, you, you think about it, you know, I was born in 1985. Anyone born my age and younger, that's all they've ever known mm-hmm. is perpetual warfare from one superpower or another or the Taliban or something. And so that's a context for how, where these people are coming from. They don't really know peace. They don't really know I mean, that, that generation doesn't really know what it's like to live in a country that doesn't have, you know, carrying around rifles and the th- threat yeah. of getting shot at. Uh, the other thing is that they're very much tribal based. And this is really something that doesn't really doesn't really affect uh, or doesn't really um, translate well into Americans. So we okay. we have our 
you know, our tribes, whether they're ducks and beavers <laughs> or, or yeah, but, um, more like race or class or those sort of things. But, but the tribes to them are, are way more important. Family and tribes is much, much more important than a national identity to the point where they don't even really have a national identity. And so especially, and so the, uh, especially the Pashtuns, which is the Southern, you know, 40 to 50% is where they, where they all live. Um, very much family focused, very much tribe focused. And, you know, it doesn't really matter what happens outside of that. And so this is really kind of how the Taliban took over in the first place is they came up through the South and they would take over town to town to town through the Pashtun South and kind of the, the mentality of the Pashtun people is it's not affecting me. It's not my problem. And so even though the town that's, you know, 10 or 12 miles away is getting attacked by the Taliban, they would not band together to go protect that town because basically, you know, that's eh, not my problem. They're over there. Never mind that they would just, that they were on the, the next, next town the on next the map. one, but yeah. then the guy next, the, the next one down wouldn't come help them out anything. for the same reason. And so when we were there, one of the hardest things to get them to do was to recognize that we, the Americans were there to help. And they, they basically, they just wanted to be left alone. And, they were like, well, you know, Taliban left us alone. They they imposed these rules, but I got to farm my fields and and whatever. Uh, now there's a Taliban hanging out in our in our uh, village, and if they see me talking to you, they're going to kill me or they're going to kill my family. So I'm not going to talk to the Americans because all I want to do is farm my fields and be left alone, Just not get shot. And so trying to convince them that hey, we're here to help, and if you tell us who that Taliban is living in your village, we'll uh, take care of it. We'll take care of it exactly. But there was such, again, given this context of perpetual warfare, they were just like, nope, I don't, it's not worth it. Leave me alone. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want your help. I don't want anything. Mm -hmm. Just, just get out of here. Um, so now apply that to the, the national army where we, the Americans <laughs> trained and paid and helped this national army get together and form and train. And none of them really have any kind of national identity still. And so there's, there's, like I said, multiple different tribes, uh, Tajiks, Uzbeks, um, whatnot in, in the Northern portion who are a little bit more, um, I don't even want to say Western, but a, a little bit more, uh, national identity focused. They, okay. they do see that there's a, an Afghanistan, but they still, their tribe is still number one. And so you get these army units of all these, all these different tribes who, mostly hate each other and have been at war with each other forever and don't and speak different languages. And they're just a very complicated mess. And you're telling them to fight for this nation that they don't even really believe in. They don't even really believe it exists. I don't, I, don't, I can't, I've been thinking about it. I can't think of an American equivalent for what it feels, what, for what they feel like of tribe is important and nation doesn't even really exist. If the, coach for Manchester United were to walk in here and we're going to he's, he's going to say we're going to give you the best training and the best uniforms and you're going to be the best soccer player ever I'm still going to say I really don't care that much like I root for the Pittsburgh Steelers I've never watched a full soccer game in my life like that's great that you want to do all this for me I just don't care that much I mean that's similar um yeah I I, I don't know I don't know how but anyway that's just kind of the the background on what's going on so now you take away the air support and now if you have, if you want to fight for this country that you don't even really know exists, you're going to have to 
get your hands dirty. It's going to involve death. It's going to involve, yeah, um, you're going to start getting killed. And uh, yeah, I can see why they didn't, why weren't interested in why that. These folks weren't ready. <laughs> and this is, and so now I feel like, so now we've caught up a little bit both about how we got here, what, what's been going on in Afghanistan, and actually what it's like a little bit on the ground. And I feel like now we're at the point in the episode where we start to talk about how badly Joe Biden screwed this up. Yeah. So anybody who's been on the ground could have told you that this was likely to happen. Um, you you deal enough with the ANA, the Afghan National Army, and you could tell that these guys were just a bunch of a bunch of profiteers. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but we were paying them to do a job. And when you stop paying them to do the job, they stop doing the job. You know, the they weren't kind of they weren't doing it because they believed in anything. They did it because. You know, this is what you do. This is how you survive in perpetual warfare is you either fight or you try to stay under the radar. You know, that that's basically it. And so um, what Biden a, a month ago, I think, came in and did a press conference that basically said, well, you just said there's 400,000 Afghan National Army. They're U.S. trained. They should be doing just fine. It's going to be can, right. They can handle We're it. Getting out. Um, it. Obviously, you can't couldn't have told the future, but. If you would ask me at that point, what was the likelihood that the Afghans are able to to hold, handle their own? Um, I would say probably about twenty five percent. I would say it's probably twenty five percent that they would be able to hold back the Taliban. Seventy five percent that they dropped the rifles and ran. So let me ask then, from a uh, again from somebody who obviously you know a lot more about the subject than I do, just because you were there for a good chunk of your adult life. What you know, I look at this as a a diplomatic calamity on the scale, the likes of which we are unlikely to see again in for another generation. This, I mean, this was Vietnam Saigon 2.0 for all intents and purposes. And that was 50 ish years ago. We've got a long way to go before the United States screws something up again, this badly, both from our own front and in the eyes of the rest of the world, which to say nothing of the fact that, you know, we Americans elected Joe Biden because we as a country wanted an, an adult in the room again, and we wanted to avoid the potential foreign policy clusters that this exact thing has turned out to be. And I say what you will about yep. Donald Trump, and we have plenty on this podcast. Donald Trump never let anything like this happen. And I maybe that's maybe that's luck and maybe that's just deft well, political skill. But I but but the reason that I bring this up is is it you know, am I correct in thinking that? Or if, if there was such a low probability that anybody in the ANA was actually going to stand up and try to fight and try to say, hey, this is a country and it's ours and it's worth saving. Was Joe Biden in the right to do what he did and said, you know what? Screw it. We're just going to get out of there. We're going to stop spending money. We're going to stop taking losses of life. And we're just going to go back to minding our own business. Well, no, he wasn't right. OK, um, <laughs> the short answer. Um, so we Americans have been weary of this war for years we've been trying to get out of afghanistan for 10 12 years at minimum and even back to the obama administration he was trying to get us out of afghanistan but it was a condition-based withdrawal you have these conditions and if those conditions aren't met you don't withdraw go. and that's what happened none of those conditions well i don't know the none but all of the conditions were not met so we didn't withdraw. Same thing with Trump. Trump was talking about getting us out of Afghanistan. He even to the point where he was signing treaties with the with the Taliban or talking to them or I, I forget exactly what he did. But there were conditions for us to withdraw. We never met those conditions. So we didn't withdraw. 
And so now Biden basically comes in and says, you know what? Screw the conditions. We're just leaving. And this is a very emotion based way to lead. And this, this is, um, kind of goes to a broader politics topic. You know, someone will come out and they'll campaign on X, Y, and Z, and then they win. And then all of a sudden they realize that, you know what? It's a whole lot easier to talk about this on the campaign trail than it is to actually, to actually do it. implement it. And this happens all the time. And they, you know, this is why politicians get a, a bad name for being slimy because they, they call them liars. Or they call it flip floppers because they promise something and then they don't deliver. It turns out. Uh, I think it's actually just the nature of politics that it's a lot harder to govern than it is to throw rocks on the campaign trail and so campaign and poetry govern in prose and it's like you ha- right. actually have work to do trump here. trump did this too he talked about getting afghanistan getting out of afghanistan on the campaign trail and never did it why because this was likely to happen because he was listening to the experts and the experts said if you leave it's going to fall apart and so we never left and you know i would assume the ha- same thing happened with obama obama was trying to get out couldn't just couldn't realistically do it and so what we had done is we had withdrawn troops and withdrawn troops and gotten our footprint so small that we were at 2,500 troops and had not had an American casualty in 18 months. 18 months. 18 months. So this is a stark contrast to back when I was there and we had over 100,000. 100,000, yeah. And, you know, people... I forget exactly what the the rates of casualties were. They were never super high, but you know, definitely zero. Right, it wasn't zero. So, I think what a lot of people were thinking is, I mean, it's a sunk cost fallacy. You know, we spent two trillion dollars on how many civilian or American lives, and got basically nothing for it. And so that means we should just cut our losses and and get out. Well, no, the current rate of spend is significantly lower than it was back then and the cost in both you know blood and treasure it was very very low um it was like i said it was just it was really just an emotional base is an emotion-based decision that we're sick of this war we're sick of being out there and the world police and we're just gonna leave and consequences are you know, we're not even worried about the consequences. So I let me just ask both you as a as a soldier and as a in the context of this conversation as a barometer of American public opinion. You, you're absolutely right that Americans don't have the appetite for wars that go on for forever. And I think a lot of what you just said is, while accurate, also very nuanced and probably potentially went over the heads of a lot of, you know, Joe Schmo <laughs> voters, R's and D's. And they just said, are we at war in Afghanistan? Yes or no? It's still yes. Like, I don't know if I like that. Doesn't matter the fact that we've gone down from 100,000 troops to 2,000-ish troops. Doesn't matter that we've gone from whatever, one, two, five, ten. 10, obviously too many casualties a day, but to zero casualties in 18 months that we've, we've, for all intents and purposes, we've got a well-oiled machine going over there. And while not a similar situation, while there's no active combat, the United States still has troop presences in, you would know the countries better than me, but Korea, Japan, Germany, uh, we could... Qatar, yeah. There, we have, I, I forget how many, but dozens of countries. We, have still, we still have troops in Kosovo from back when that was going from on. From the Clinton administration. Right, exactly. And, and then we so, haven't left. It's not a new thing. Like, we never left Kosovo. Yeah. And and so uh, while you're correct, and I think if you ask in, a, in general, if you ask any, you know, 10 Americans on the street, hey, should we get out of Afghanistan or should we just hang out forever? Most of them are going to say, yeah, I, I don't want my military just hanging out in places, especially where there is a chance that they're going to get shot, even though in this before a couple weeks ago, there hadn't been any KIAs in 18 months. But 
if there is a if we're doing it as well as we are democrats right now are happy because joe biden has kept his promise libertarians are happy because we shouldn't have been over there in the first place all this is wonderful but does it does the the reward of actually getting out does it match up with the the cost of essentially 80 billion dollars in 20 years that's all gone up in smoke in two weeks uh i well i don't think so i mean i i think it's it was difficult so i i have not thought a lot about Afghanistan in the last several years just because I'm not over there. You know, I see it on the news occasionally, but haven't really been paying attention on a, on a daily or weekly basis like I was. Um, I, if you had asked me before this whole thing kicked off, if I wanted a permanent presence in Afghanistan, um, I don't, I'm not sure what I would have told you, but at the same time, looking back in hindsight, I think that was probably the right call. Was ha- and to the to the same extent, and not so much like a perpetual warfare, but similar to how we have a garrison in in Kosovo, and we have a garrison in Okinawa, and we have a garrison in Germany. You know, have it a permanent duty station. You know, people guys rotate in and out. Kuwait, we're still in Kuwait. Um, guys rotate in and out, hang out in Bagram Airfield for a year. You know, support the the air support the. Uh, Air Force guys out there who are running the drones and who are running the fighters and continue running missions out of Bagram. Uh, you can reach basically the whole country from there with uh, these um, super, uh, the the uh, the fighters are pretty incredible how far they can go, especially if you have like a, a refueling tanker, which we would, this is another story. Um, you'd have a, a B-1 that would just circle over the country <laughs> uh, with, uh, not a B-1, but a Anyway, one of those big tankers, it would circle for like 24 hours and these, we would have <laughs> fighters on station shooting at bad guys. And all of a sudden they'd be like, Hey, I got to go refuel. We'll be back in 10 minutes. And they just go up to 30,000 feet, go refuel with this guy. And then they'd be back in 10 minutes with a full, <laughs> full tank of gas. <laughs> full tank of gas. It was really kind of, kind of interesting how that worked, but like you can, there's, there's a lot you can do just from that one base in Bagram and it's fairly close to Kabul and you know, if, I think now that probably was the right call is just have a minimal, minimal U.S. presence until the Afghan government is competent enough to take over and not just rip the bandaid off. Because this is what's I mean, this is the Taliban. These are the same. They're going to do the same thing they were doing back in 2001. You know, as much as Biden wants to talk about, you know, encouraging them to be diverse and have, you know, give women their the the same rights and include them in the economy and, and whatever, like they're not going to do it because they're they're ideologues. I mean, we're going to go back to women do not have basic rights. We're going to go back to public executions, beheadings, all sorts of stuff. And we're th- this is all our fault. From I from the the female perspective, there I, there is one university that was sixty percent women. They have already gone and told all the students, say, "Hey, you are no longer welcome here." There are females who are working at you know at jobs at companies, and they said, "You need to go. You need to leave and give these jobs to your male cousins or your male husbands or your male brothers or whatever." And women's rights will be set back generations because of what we did. To say nothing of the fact that God help you if you are a minority LGBTQ. Any, uh, any of the types of the, like that we, you know, we fight about on the margins here in this country, but, I, but by and large, women's rights are equal rights, are men's rights. Women can do anything that a man can do. Sure, there's mm-hmm. fewer women who are heading companies or serving on boards or something like that. But like, but by and large, you're about equal here. If you're gay, you 
you can you've had the right to marry for seven years, eight years, I think. Oh, I forget when loving. No, not lo- whatever the Obergfell anyway. was the case. Um, but you, you've got the right to marry the person of your choice. We we here in Portland, we see trans people all the time, and it's perfectly acceptable to be yep. questioning your gender identity or go by a they them pronoun. Uh, nobody bats an eye. It's about stuff like that, and. Now all of a sudden you go to this other part of the world and all these things that we, that we thought we stood for. And especially, especially in the Democratic Party, there you have your pronouns in your bio on Twitter and you stand up for Pride Month celebrations and all these kinds of things. And you just, you get out of there and it's like you've set back millions of people back yep. to the Stone Age essentially. And it's just like, what now? I, are you sure you're super, you know, Pro-Pride and pro-LGBTQ. And like I said, it was an emotional decision. It was a campaign promise that should not have been kept. That, you know, he should have listened to the people who were on the ground, who had the experience. Because I guarantee someone was... There were people telling him... This is a bad idea. Do not do we're, this. We're not ready to leave yet. If we do, because I mean, you you could basically watch it in real time. As soon as Biden said we're leaving on September 11th, the Taliban started taking over. They started. They ended up. It started once one corner of the country and just slowly marched their way through. And then, as soon as we announced that we were leaving, uh, they just they just rolled on up and took over the rest of it. And I, you're talking about emotions. I, that's exactly it. Joe Biden wanted to be out by September 11th. And obviously that's a, it's a tremendously impactful day for a number of America. I, I, there's a, there's a fantastic article. If I, I don't know if you've ever read it or if any of our listeners, it's called the only plane in the sky. And it's a, um, it was a, he's a reporter for like the Washington Post or whatever, but he was on the presidential detail that day. And so he got to see firsthand what it was to be in the classroom in Florida and then be on Air Force One and you're flying around and they landed in, I think it was Louisiana first and then Nebraska, and then they ended up back home in D.C. that night or something like that. And it was just all the, the real time how decisions were getting made and how communications were suffering. Mm-hmm. And what, if and I, I, it's it'll take you an hour, but I reread that every September 11th. It came out six or seven years ago. Strongly encourage anybody to go do that. But this was Joe Biden just said, we want to be out by September 11th when there's no factual basis in reality to say this is something right. that we can reach. There's there was no reason to think that that was possible. It was a purely ethos, emotional driven decision because of how impactful that day is. And this is going in two weeks, it's going to be 20 years since September 11, 2001. And it's like, now we, we went and we did this whole thing and now it's, and we spent all this money and we tried to save all these lives and now it's all kind of for nothing. We still have the town. Ta- we've, we've eradicated Al Qaeda. They, they are a but shell there, of what they once there were. There will be another one. I mean, now we've got ISIS K is the, ISIS K. The, the new it, one. Yeah. Yeah. It's like every, every six weeks you hear of a new coronavirus variant. Now there's a new terrorist <laughs> variant. It's, this is going to be the same. And there, this time there's no vaccine for it. We can't have the vaccine debate about it. They, they will wait. You know, that the Taliban will, there will be some growing pains. They, once they get control of the country, starve a bunch of people, kill a bunch of people. And I would say a few years from now, they will start harboring terrorists again. There will be terrorist training camps in Afghanistan once again. And three to five years from now, we will be back in Afghanistan, just like we were back in Iraq. Once we left Iraq, we were back in a couple of years because you, you leave this broken shell of a country without a real organization or without a real government governing it. And that's what happens in that, in that area of the world. Terrorism takes hold. Um, radical Islam takes hold. And this is, this has happened before. It's going to happen again. Happen in Iraq. It's going to happen, happen in Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, Joe Biden making bad decisions is, the reason this is happening 
And I, from a, from a, as, as we're coming up on time here on the episode, right, 10 minutes, we got, oh, we got plenty of time. You guys get to hear us gab for a little while longer, but going forward, we now have a, a, a number of countries. Taiwan is the first one that comes mm-hmm. up is the first that comes to mind, but there's a number of countries that had always said, we are these fledgling democracies. We're trying to be independent. We're trying to advocate for freedom. We're trying to advocate for Western values and, absolute worst case scenario we have the united states as a backstop and now they know they don't and well, we've and, and allies i mps in in england tony blair penned a penned a letter that called this imbecilic the the way that joe <laughs> biden has handled this boris johnson referred to joe biden as sleepy joe donald trump's nickname from and it, it, some of the stuff it's just like these are our own allies that that we have now strained relations with and again the kind of the whole the the crux of the biden presidency was we've got an adult in the room now we don't have Donald right. Trump at the helm. We've got somebody who's competent, who's been in the Senate for 50 years. He understands America's place in the world and how to manage things with our allies. And, and now this, the whole thing is just blown up in his face and we're a laughing stock. So, a couple of things. Um, the situation in Taiwan or these other places, I think, is very different from Afghanistan because you you don't have that tribal um, tribal mindset. You don't have a 50 years of warfare of continual warfare as as a culture um taiwan in particular has a functioning government they are uh, a about as democratic you know small d democratic as you can get um if china ever i see i don't think china is ever going to go to war with with taiwan i think that there's just too much uh, too much going on there but if they did i i don't i think that we would support Taiwan. I don't think that that's a realistic, that's Chinese propaganda saying that we're not going to support Taiwan. Of course, we're going to support Taiwan. Um, it's just, it's a totally different, um, just a different beast. And, uh, you know, just talking about the, um, the Trump thing, um, you know, say what you will about Trump and, and believe me, I have, we have. but his, his foreign policy was pretty darn good. You know, I, his domestic policy or his domestic tweets like the stuff he did domestically uh the chaos of the administration you know you kev we've criticized that to death but of all the things he did internationally i can't think of a major policy blunder that he's certainly nothing on this not of this scale i mean he kept us out of war with north korea which was a very real possibility that was a obama promised him right before he the day after the election would have said you will be at war with north korea at some point in your administration so you know maybe meeting with him was and i i've listened to some different takes on this maybe meeting with kim jong-un was was not the best plan but it kept us out of war with with north korea so can't argue with results same thing with with uh nato and trying to get the other NATO nations to start spend, spending their yeah. what they agreed to as part of be joining NATO, and they haven't been for years. Uh, you know, again, I, I'm not sure I liked the way he did it, but he he accomplished that. So to join NATO, you're supposed to spend as part of your two depend two percent of your GDP. That is a requirement for joining and staying in NATO. As it stands, the U.S. spends like seven or eight. I think Canada spent like two point five. And no one else, no one else, <laughs> no one else spent uh, two percent. You know, you're getting Germany spending one and a half, Britain spending one. Um, all of Europe basically had had uh, not done this, and so Trump comes in and was uh, kind of a jerk about it. But he got them to start spending on infrastructure or on military, which is great because the NATO is not supposed to be an extension of the U.S foreign policy it's supposed to be a coalition of equals and you 
if you, if you don't have a military, uh, you're, you're just kind of, you know, allowing the other people to carry your, your, uh, your you burdens for you. Model UN or something so, like that. Yeah. I mean, he did that. I think the one thing I would be a little bit critical of was moving the, um, the, the embassy and the Israel. embassy to Israel in Israel. Yeah. But it, even that turned out to be a big nothing burger. You know, people protested for a couple of weeks and then, you know, I think only like nine people died only. I mean, nine, nine Which people is still, still, yeah, still not yeah. right. But then they stopped protesting and basically Israel's back to, you know, kind of where it was. Uh, but of all the, th- all the foreign policy things that Trump did, there, there were not any huge gaffes. It was most, I mean, foreign policy is difficult because you make decisions and then, you know, you don't really have any control over how people react to it. So it's tough to get everything right. But then a Biden comes in and all he had to do was nothing. All he had to do was maintain the status quo and we could have avoided this whole mess. And so now Kate Brown comes out and says, you know, Oregon is welcome, is open to refugees and we're setting up some nonprofits to make Afghan, you know, welcome packets and, and, you know, that's all great. And, but I just is like, I, I'm so frustrated because it's like, it's kind of like breaking into somebody's house, shooting them in the leg and then holding a press conference for how great you are for performing first aid and not allowing this person to die. <laughs> like, Okay, may, you caused this mess, and yes, now it is the correct thing to do to welcome the refugees and do everything we can to make sure that they can come to America and and settle and you know contribute and whatever. But um, gosh, it wasn't necessary. You know, all we had to do was just maintain a small presence, and we could have saved untold human lives and suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, but here we are. But here we are, and that's and I. Uh, I was talking with my wife and her parents last night and I, you know, of course me, I, the, you go to the political implications and it's like, and, and we're going through a redistricting year. So running for Congress is going to look a lot different in 2022 Mm -hmm. than it did in 2020. But you, you have to assume that for, if you're a Democrat, this thing that you wanted, this thing that your guy campaigned on is, is going to cost you seats in the Senate and may cost you control of the Senate. It's going to cost you seats in the House, depending on how the maps get drawn. And you're now the party who can't be in in control of foreign policy. And Mm -hmm. I I don't think you or I is is at a point where we're going to start saying, you know, I guess the Trump presidency was like, he's pretty awful. He was a lousy president. He's he's a a, a big dummy shouldn't have been there in the first place. <laughs> but uh, I mean, as we've covered now, well, this, this could issue in uh Trump 2024. And I, I mean, if it, he runs that he's the front runner. If, yeah, if, if you're Donald Trump, this absolutely is a thing to catch. And, and now that like Biden apologists have come back and said, well, we were just following the plan that Donald Trump put in place in the first place. And it's like, look, yeah, like take ownership for your own mistakes. Every other thing that the guy did, you've gone back and reverse tack as soon as you got in there. But now this is going to be the thing that, it's like, well, Donald Trump did it, and we, you know, I'm just the president of the United States. I can't make any effective change. It's like, yeah, I'm sorry, man. Like this one's on you. And sure, it's been five presidents now that we've got that that, that have we've had to deal with the Afghanistan mess. And I don't think I don't think one of them has handled it particularly stellarly. I guess four presidents. You can't really count Clinton in there, though. I do think a lot of what Bill Clinton had done led to the rise of Al Qaeda and the Taliban. And sure enough, nine months into the Bush presidency, now we have September 11th. But You've you've now got four presidents who have had to deal with this, and uh, yeah, nobody did it spectacularly well, or just did an absolute bang up job. But uh, nobody for decades has failed on the level that Joe Biden has just failed 
and as quickly as he has. This is just yeah. a, a just an incredible, just absolute unforced error that will reverberate for generations of American foreign policy. You know what I think? This is kind of going to the broader Biden presidency, but I think what he's doing is he's failing to adapt to the situation on the ground. He he had all these great plans, all these great ideas, you know, these great campaign promises, and he's just like, we're going forward with this regardless of of anything. We're not adapting to the the situation on the ground. Um, you look at Bush Jr. and what happened in 9-11. You know, Bush wanted, didn't want to be a wartime president. You know, he wanted to be an economy. Compassionate Compassionate conservative. conservative. Yeah. Um, and then the situation changed and he became a wartime president and I think did did a pretty darn good job on the foreign policy front. I mean, at least it could be as could be expected given the circumstances. Um, Biden comes in and, you know, not just this, where the, the situation on the ground is one thing and then you have campaign promise to get out of Afghanistan and you just like, ah, screw it, just rip the Band-Aid off and cause a whole bunch of problems. <laughs> Look at the economy. The economy's on the brink right now. Um, you know, CPI is only like 5% inflation. The, the way that they calculate it is only like 5% or whatever. And Biden apologists to include people like AOC keep talking about, Oh, it's transitory. It's not that big of a deal. It's going to pass. It's mostly driven by the used car market, which blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Steel is up 150%. Lumber was up and then back down. I don't know where it's at, but it was up over a hundred percent. New home prices are up 40% from a year ago. Um, it's not long before those commodity prices start trickling into finished goods. I mean, in my garage door business, our prices have gone up 80% since January 1st. 80%. And that's not even keeping pace with steel. Steel's gone up more than that. I expect we'll get more price increases before the end of the year. Uh, and you know what? I pass that on to my customers because that's the only way a business stays, stays, in business. stays in business. So we are on the brink of double-digit stagflation. And Biden's solution is to spend three and a half trillion dollars on an infrastructure package. Maybe now is not the time, man. Like I get it, you know, we, our infrastructure is is falling apart, and maybe this yep. is necessary. With but on that, you've Why? got a post-pandemic economy that is on the brink of falling apart, and uh, maybe tax and spend isn't the way to fix it. So. Plus, let's hope it's post-pandemic and not middle pandemic and there's more, a bunch more. Del- <laughs> oh, well, and seriously, because, I mean, it's like if we um, we're uh, it's really nice outside right now. It's, t- it's still the end of August. It's 80 or 85 degrees outside. But like we're coming in towards the winter months. And that's last year when it was the problem. And yep. if Delta cases start to spike and now there's more spending bills and twelve hundred dollar stimulus checks per person and all the unemployment and rental I, assistance and this and the other thing. And it's I, like you're just going to keep throwing more and more money on the card and. I, I said this at the beginning of the pandemic, but you can't just spend your way out of manufacturing issues. You know, the, the, if things, if people don't make things, things don't get made. I think, uh, <laughs> Elon Musk said that, but, uh, if things don't get made, it doesn't matter how much money you pump into the economy. All you're going to do is, is oversaturate or oversaturate demand without an increase in supply because you just, you're at a limit at some point. And you can't fix manufacturing problems with stimulus. And so, you know, we had these these lockdowns and shutting down plants. And even just now, we're starting to get, um, I would say, even the, the Trump tariffs uh, are partially to blame for that. Although I Certainly. think that was probably necessary at the time. Um, that's a whole other issue. I was going to say, of, that's, of, let's that's get a whole it, other that's another podcast. <laughs> dealing with China and, and that more long-term approach. But uh, 
I, I think this is going to be, this is starting out to be a real disaster of a presidency. And okay, maybe he's not making racist comments on Twitter, but he's literally killing people in the Middle East yeah. with his decisions. So, I mean, neither one are good, but one is less good than the other. I firmly will agree with that. As so. much as much as I loathe Donald Trump, will firmly agree with that. Anyway, who's your favorite Republican? Uh, I I think I've, I've answered this before. I think actually I? you yeah, have probably because yeah. I think From we did when one, you were yeah, running. So yeah. Who's your favorite Republican? So that's a. Uh, I was a little worried about that. I, right now, I'm gonna say uh, I'm gonna say Ben Sass, senator from oh. Nebraska, who I think taught at UT or went to University of Texas uh, for some point in grad school. So I, I know there's a Longhorn connection in there somewhere. So go Horns. Um, one of the cool, I, I think he's he's very much of my ilk of GOP, which I think is very like is awesome. There's obviously there's a lot of like Trumpy GOP and a lot of non-Trumpy but still very conservative members of the GOP, and it's I, I want somebody like. Ben Sass, who can come in as like, I just want to fix stuff. One yep. of the cool things I think about Ben Sass is, uh, he's, he's an Uber driver. When he goes back, goes back home on weekends and he just, uh, you know, you make a little bit of money, sure, but like you just, you get a real chance to just sit and talk to people as they're going from one bar to the other on Saturday. And I just be like, Hey man, like, how's your life? What's going on? Yeah. And I think that's a really cool way to kind of like stay in touch with your voters for as much as you do. I'm sure he does, you know, teletown halls and, you know, in person, you know, the forums and I, you know, this, that and the other thing has an email listserv and whatever. But I feel like that's just kind of a cool way to like not kind of like, not be DC, not just be like elitist or whatever. Like you just, you're sitting driving drunk people from a Taco Bell to a bar at two o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night or something like that. I'm like, that's, I'm sure he's got some pretty good conversations. So yeah, I'm, I'm going with Ben Sass. Good answer. All right. Well, with that, we will finish it up and listeners and viewer, we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the rational Republican podcast. Your hosts are James Ball and Nick Perlosky. The show today is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors of Portland, serving the greater Portland metro area for all your garage door installation and repair needs. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us at james at jamesaball.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find our episodes at jamesaball.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts.